What's up, everybody? Welcome to the first ever episode of Creep Academy. I'm your host, Gasly Ash, and I'm tremendously excited to get this show going because it's something that I've really wanted to do for quite some time, and I've finally found a little bit of extra time to get it together. What I want this show to be really is just a combination of all things creepy and out of the ordinary, which really are just my favorite things to discuss with friends and family, and just overall my favorite things to discuss. In general. I wanted it to be different each week because I don't want it to be predictable and I don't want it to just be the same subject matter all the time. I wanted to widen the net a bit and just delve into some creepy old local legends, little known weird mythologies, and just anything horror related that makes your skin crawl because those are my favorite types of stories to hear and they're honestly my favorite types of stories to tell. So I want there to be enough variety to hopefully keep you all entertained and wondering what's next because, I mean, you know, that's the goal is to keep you guys kind of wondering and tuning in. So I will be releasing episodes once a week. I'm not quite sure what day of the week right at this moment just because of how my schedule falls, but it will be weekly. And the best way to find out when that will be is to just keep an eye out on your podcast station whatever you're listening to it on or to follow us at creep academy cast on instagram so just keep an eye out there and i will also be posting photos that relate to what we're talking about each week as well so go ahead and pop over there and give us a follow that would be awesome so a little about myself and i promise this has everything to do with today's topic is i moved here to california from colorado quite some time ago and my motivation for doing so is I'm sure most likely the same as everyone motive who moves out here is I wanted to be in the entertainment industry, writing and directing. So what I did is I sold everything that I could one day, just some random day, and I picked up what I was taking with me and I hopped into the car with my best friend at the time. Now, after selling everything that I had, I only had about $5,000, which if you live here in LA, you know that does not go far, especially when it comes to moving. and At that time, I didn't really think about it. I didn't care. But what we had done is we tried to make sure that we had a place to stay when we arrived and we were dealing with this individual. We had put money down for an apartment and everything like that. Everything seemed peachy. But about halfway through the drive, we found out that we had been scammed out of that money because that individual we were talking about wasn't the property owner and that apartment specifically wasn't even for rent. So out about $1,200, We kind of just decided, keep moving, we'll find a place when we get there. And about an hour or so out, I found an extended stay hotel on an app that I was using. And I booked the stay, and I wanted to just get our bearings. I didn't look too much into that hotel, which is my fault completely. But it turned out that this hotel was the CISO Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Now, If you're into stories about true crime or hauntings or creepy anything, which I'm sure you are since you're here listening now, you are familiar with this hotel. I'm not going to go into the Cecil too much on this episode because Spencer Henry over at Cult Leader just recently did an amazing episode on it, and I want to discuss this other California icon today. But for those of you who aren't familiar... The Cecil is an infamous L.A. hotel, and it's due to the fact that an uncomfortable amount of creepy things have happened there. It's infamous for having a number of murderers who have lived there. Countless deaths occur on the premises. 
and of course rumors of hauntings. Now, we got there around midnight, and it was already kind of creepy because the area isn't all that great, but I just need to tell you that walking into that lobby at the time was super eerie to me, and and it's not because of the history, because I didn't know that history at the time, but it had a weird vibe immediately, and it was really dimly lit, and it was kind of dingy, and it was just not a comfortable place, but we didn't really have a choice. So I approached the desk anyway. And the woman behind the desk told me that they didn't even have a record of my booking and that there was no more rooms available. I was irritated at the time to hear that, but we really had no idea how lucky we were because the creepy thing about this was if we had checked in and stayed there during this time, we would have been inside the hotel when all of the incidents went down with Elisa Lamb, when she had gone missing and was found deceased in the water tanks on the roof of the hotel. So, yeah, pretty lucky there. But the morbid part of me, the one that likes all of the weird spooky stuff, was a little bit bummed, admittedly, that we weren't there when I learned about this case. I know, it's weird, but uh, it kind of kicked off my whole tumble down the rabbit hole of what other sinister shit that these certain places in the city might have. And at the time I had just met my native Angelino friend who would eventually become my roommate now. And while discussing my interest in the darker side of LA, he mentioned he had a perfect place to show me. And this place has a reputation all its own. And locals may know, maybe even nationally, I'm not quite sure. But this place is what our episode is going to be about today. And that place is the Colorado Street Bridge in Pasadena. Now, before I finally move on to the meat of the episode, I wanted to add a quick disclaimer. This episode does include sensitive themes such as mental health and suicide. So if this is something that you have trouble with, you may want to prepare yourself a bit before continuing on. So the Colorado Street Bridge is a beautiful picturesque concrete bridge in Pasadena that curves along the Arroyo Seco Riverbed. It was built in 1912 by a design firm called Waddle and Harrington with the intent for it to be part of Route 66, and it stands about 150 feet high. It has these gorgeous old school style lighting fixtures, and it makes it seem frozen in time alongside the normal freeway. And it was exactly what I was looking for in terms of eerie tales, because as my friend and I approached the bridge to shoot a few pictures late one night, He also began to explain to me that this particular bridge has a really, really dark past and present, so much so that it's known as Suicide Bridge. Now, the nickname was acquired all the way back in 1932, but the bridge began laying the groundwork for this horrible reputation before construction had even been completed. The first life that's been rumored to have been claimed on this bridge was one of the construction workers building the bridge. He supposedly, according to the stories, fell over the side of the bridge and landed headfirst into a vat of wet cement. But while doing my research, I read a few different instances of this story regarding what occurred after the men fell over the side. A few accounts stated that he could not be saved in time before his body was covered in the quick-drying cement, or at least his head was covered in the quick-drying cement, while a few other stories assert that his fellow construction workers assumed he died on impact and apparently just looked at looked at each other kind of over the side like, well, shit, we can't get to him, and just allowed his body to become entombed in the concrete. Whichever way it occurred, a lot of people around the area now kind of pass on the little urban legend that he now haunts the area, along with a ghost of a man 
who in 2008 had stabbed and killed both his son's mother and maternal grandmother and went to the bridge soon after the murders and jumped to his death. So already I'm kind of enthralled in the whole history and kind of legend of this bridge. And as we're walking across the bridge that night, he was telling me the story. It was very late, so it kind of had this ethereal kind of vibe to it. And it was only us on the bridge, and there was nobody else, no cars, no foot traffic, nothing like that. And there was also kind of a slight mist to the air, so it made the whole scene and story even more surreal, and it made me more immersed in the story. So as we approached one of the seating alcoves, I wanted to get a better look over the side and snap a few long exposure shots from across the freeway. And as I did so, he began telling me the story of one of the bridge's most infamous deaths, and that's the death of Myrtle Ward. According to a story in the Los Angeles Times from the late 90s, Myrtle was, quote, young, beautiful, and troubled. At 22, she was fretting over losing her job at the downtown Los Angeles cafeteria and despondent about the bleak outlook for the world and her family in the Depression year of 1937, end quote. Her husband, Clarence, was a part-time musician, which I'm sure in the Great Depression was a tough sell to acquire paid gigs. I mean, it's tough nowadays. So he made the decision to join the Federal Works Progress Administration in order to make a bit of money to take care of Myrtle and their three-year-old daughter, Jean. Now, I'm obsessed with the 1920s and 1930s. It's just an aesthetic that I really like, and I love the history. But for those of you who aren't, the Works Progress Administration was a employment program created during the Great Depression whose purpose was to provide jobs to the unemployed and to the underskilled. So like jobs in public works infrastructure and in construction. So Myrtle's husband being a member of this probably wasn't around much, which I'm sure kind of exasperated the problems and irritability and sadness that Myrtle was feeling at the time. So on the morning of May 1st, 1937, she packed up Jean and herself into the family car and drove to Pasadena. Now she ran a few errands in the earlier part of the morning and around 9 a.m., she parked her car near the Colorado Street Bridge. According to the article wrote about her, she, quote, turned her back to the sun and walked west with her daughter about 100 feet on the bridge to an alcove containing a granite seat. Then, impervious to the screaming protests from two eyewitnesses, she picked up Jean and tossed the child over the side, end quote. You guys, Looking over the side of one of the seating alcoves while he was telling me this, I couldn't imagine how creepy and terrifying and just shocking it would have been to be those eyewitnesses and see that happen. A 22-year-old woman tossing a, a child, a three-year-old child, over the side of a super tall bridge. It's just, I don't know. Um, I really just can't imagine it. It's terrible. But they understandably, immediately freak out, and as they're scrambling down to get to the bottom to get to Jean, Myrtle climbs up and jumps, plummeting to her death. The crazy part is, when the witnesses finally make it to the bottom, they find the baby, Jean, still alive with only cuts and bruises. It turned out a tree had stopped her fall and saved her life. Myrtle, however, died two hours later at the hospital. Unfortunately, Myrtle isn't the only suicide on the bridge, and as a matter of fact, wasn't even the first. The first suicide took place in November of 1919, with an estimated of 30 to 50 during the Great Depression alone. The suicides also just continue to this day. It's just been a really, really dark part 
of this bridge's characteristic. It's kind of just in, it's what it's known for, unfortunately. Um, as a matter of fact, this past May, Pasadena police officers spent hours talking down a West Covina man off the edge of the bridge. And in April of this year as well, another body was found in the wash underneath the bridge. What was interesting to me as I read account after account, though, was the vast majority of these jumpers are not from the city of Pasadena itself. It kind of seemed as if almost all of these individuals made pilgrimages from surrounding cities and states specifically to jump from this bridge, which is really sad because it, it's just now ingrained in the life and history of this bridge. As it stands right now, the suicides that have happened on this bridge are well into the hundreds. And what I found a little bit of troubling about these suicides while I was doing my research is that a number of these individuals were mentioned who had either called the police or mentioned to others prior to their jumping that they were feeling suicidal, yet either nothing was done or when the cries for help were answered, the solution was always a 72-hour psych evaluation, which doesn't always work for those of us who are kind of more familiar with the mental health services that are provided to us here. According to Joseph Ma, a man who actually survived the jump from a different Pasadena bridge, stated that he didn't think it helped at all. He stated that he called 911 a number of times for help leading up to that evening and was then taken to a hospital for the psych evaluation. He said, quote, he was there for a couple of days and they sent me back home, which didn't work at all and led me to believe I had no chance in what transpired, end quote. In 2011, another man, Ronnie Petros, was also supposedly evaluated and released before he jumped and unfortunately took his own life from the Colorado Street Bridge. In this instance, though, Pasadena police had arrested Ronnie the Monday night prior to his fatal jump and they had found him standing near the edge of the bridge. They found him, incidentally, because his mother had called stating that she was concerned about his safety due to him being suicidal. After his arrest, the officers took him to a mental health facility where he was basically just spent the night and he was released the next morning at 8.15 a.m. Three hours later, at 11.30 a.m., the police received a call that a man had jumped from the bridge. When they went to investigate, they found that it ended up being Ronnie. Now, look, I understand that some individuals may not want help or when they are admitted, they act just okay enough in an evaluation for the doctors to think that they're okay to be released or there's extenuating circumstances and, you know, things like that. So I'm not entirely faulting the faculty or staff of this facility, but usually when there's a threat of suicide, he should be kept a bit longer. I mean, in my opinion, and I feel like he should have been kept at least longer than 24 hours, which Technically, he hadn't even been for a full 24 hours yet by the time he had left and committed suicide. So if you remember, he was taken in that Monday night when they got the call from his mother and then released early Tuesday morning when he ended up jumping. So, I mean, it's it's tough to make the call about whether or not he should have been in longer since we don't know really the ins and outs of the actual situation. But it seems as though he should have been able to be in this facility and evaluated for a little bit longer than 8 to 12 hours or however long he was in. 
The city of Pasadena is currently drawing up plans to set up a permanent barrier to prevent further suicides, which I came to realize was a giant 10-foot chain link fence at last I read. But I think that the elephant in the room here is that the mental health is something that this entire country, let alone this state, needs to really work on a bit more than actual physical barriers to prevent suicide. It's a tough situation because obviously insurance here isn't really all that conducive to mental health care and there's long wait periods and stuff like that. And as a person who suffers with certain mental health issues myself from depression to ADHD and anxiety, things like that, I know just how frustrating it can be to try to get help and be met with just being handed off to someone else, like the psych evaluation, or feeling like nobody wants or knows really how to help. That said, though, even though I do understand it, I should mention that if you are having suicidal ideas, please, please reach out for help. It might be a little difficult, but I'll leave the number of the suicide helpline in the episode description, and there are resources and people out there that will help get you on the road to better health. So, It's not a lost cause. Don't ever think it's a lost cause. But I do understand that it's tough and it can get frustrating. And it seems sometimes like there's nowhere to turn. So I think that in order to address the the problems of suicide occurring so often on this bridge, we kind of have to look that kind of ugly thing in the face and try and figure out a way to fix that. But That is it for today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, this was my first ever episode of any kind of podcast, the first ever Creep Academy podcast, and I really just had a blast. If you've had any weird experiences on the bridge, like seeing apparitions or heard more detailed stories, let me know in the comments on Instagram. I'd love to hear them because I've read that there's so many hauntings, but I didn't see anything there. Or if you have any ideas for any creepy topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please shoot me a message on Instagram. I'd love to hear them all. Again, it's Creep Academy Cast on Instagram, and I'll see you all next time.